0: Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Okay, Acts chapter 22, verse 19, it says, and we, you guys remember the setting here. Do I need to back up and paint that picture for you? All is... Uh, you know, preaching. He's preaching to the Jewish people. Uh, he's been captured by a chief captain and he's being kind of drugged away. Uh, he asks the chief captain to give pause for a moment that he might turn to the crowd and address them. And he preaches the testimony of his own salvation. He basically tells them how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And here we are at this moment where Paul, you know, they've been listening. The, the crowd has been listening. They've been attentive. They've been hearing him. They've been been maybe even agreeing with him up to this point. He's talking about how he came to know Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's saying all these incredible things, and they're listening, they're paying attention. So so he's addressing the crowd, and they're, they're hearing him out, and then he comes to this point in his testimony where he says something that catches them off guard, that they're not ready to hear, that the crowd is not ready to hear that's where we're at right here, verse 19. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And so what he's saying here is that once upon a time before he knew Jesus Christ as his savior, he actually participated in the persecution and the suffering of believers in Jesus Christ. And so if you know anything about Paul and his past, before he knew Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church, and he would go and he'd find Christians and he'd imprison them. He'd drag them away. And in this instance of Stephen was actually a participant in his stoning and his death. And he's reminding them of that. But at the exact same time in the narrative, he's telling them, "But there's something that changed me. I was once like you, I was once angry, I was once frustrated, I was once angry at all these Christians, and yet there was a moment where truth came to me, and it set me free. Now, none of this has bothered them up to this point until this next statement that he makes in verse 21. And it says, and he said unto me, that's Christ said unto Paul, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Okay, and so the declaration that Christ makes over Paul's life is, look, I'm not only going to save you and set you apart. But the work that I'm going to set you apart for is to go to the Gentile people, the heathen, the dirty, the vile, those you once hated, those that you once saw as despicable. I'm going to send you to them that they might be set free and come to saving knowledge in me. Now, when he delivers that message on these Jewish ears, it was the line in the sand. It was the thing that they heard that said, no, that's crazy. We don't want any part of that. Now we talked about last time we were together that when we're sharing the gospel we're sharing our testimony with other people in every conversation in every relationship that's centered on Jesus Christ there are going to be the the lost are going to come to a place in that dialogue where they're going to hear something that's going to be very difficult for them to hear it will be a proverbial line in the sand for them and you're going to have to set that truth about who Jesus Christ is before them and let them come to a conclusion on their own you're going to have to trust that work to the Holy Spirit, so Paul knows that this statement that he makes it would offend the, offend his hearers, uh, particularly during this time where where there was an escalation between the Jewish people and the Gentiles because of Rome's occupation of Jerusalem. Okay, tension was really high, and so what he said would have even more impact. And <laughs> I. I want to point something out real quick, and it might be, by, uh, it might be a bit of, a, of, a, of a, a, a throwback to what we talked about last time we were together, but I want to point out and I want to remind you that there are a lot of Christs in this world, right? There's a lot of false Christs, and I find it very interesting that the Jewish people were willing to hear all these things about Jesus until they heard something about Jesus that they didn't like, and everybody wants their own flavor of Jesus Christ. The Mormons have their own flavor of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witness have their own flavor of Jesus Christ. Even the liberal world, who would not even profess Christ, has their own version of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that, that the only version of Jesus Christ, the only real truth, is the truth of Scripture. Amen. In any t- it, we can't just call anything Jesus. Jesus isn't the brother of Lucifer, which is what the Mormons believe. Okay. The moment you believe in a Jesus that's any other Jesus than the one of Scripture... You're believing in a false Christ, and so the version of Christ, the version of the Messiah that Paul presented to this Jewish crowd, was not one that was palatable for them. So they refused it. They refused it, and I want to point something out, and that's this: that Paul didn't care. Now, now what I I mean isn't that Paul didn't care for their souls. He certainly did. He wouldn't have gone to all this trouble. He wouldn't even be in Jerusalem if his heart wasn't broken for the Jewish people to come to the saving knowledge of the Messiah. He wouldn't even have been there. But what I'm saying is that Paul didn't care that the Bible, that the truth, that the word of God might be offensive. He took for granted the fact that actually it probably would be. See, regardless of their imminent hostility, Paul knew he couldn't compromise the gospel. He just couldn't do it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the truth is that Paul wasn't willing to redact the word whosoever to make the word, the the truth palatable for his audience. He knew that his Messiah came to save the world. And he wasn't going to rob that of the character of Jesus. He wasn't going to take that away. Simply to make it easier for his crowd to hear. And I think that this is very, very important. This idea that whosoever believeth in him is a crucial component of, of the character and the personage of who Jesus Christ is. And Paul risked everything to make that plain. And I wonder, I wonder if we're willing to do the same. I wonder if we, as the college and young adult ministry, have a tendency to soften or make the gospel more palatable based on the audience that we're presenting it to. And we might have all the right intentions, and we might desire a good thing, but one of the things I've noticed, even in the people that I really respect, is a a tendency to compromise truth just a little bit in order to make it easier to swallow for the people that they're ministering to. Now, we've talked about this over and over again. We've talked about this in the life of Paul. That we ought to be willing to go and adapt and be flexible in any way that the gospel demands. That we're to enter into any kind of culture that we're called to. That that there's things about the Christian life that are incredibly flexible. Because our identity is only sourced in Jesus Christ and nothing alone, it's not not sourced in the things that we're interested in or any sort of cultural predisposition. That we can actually become whatever the gospel requires of us, but the one thing that we can't ever do is compromise the truth of who Jesus Christ is. The truth came to us, and the truth is going to have to go to other people too. And we can't water it down. He deserves so much more than that. And Paul never watered down the truth. Would we be bold enough to let the gospel draw the line in the sand of our relationships? Would we let, uh, let the truth of God's word divide where necessary? The light, the light of scripture that we talked about earlier, this idea of, of, of Christ being the light of life, is really important because what the Bible says, what, scripture, what John chapter one says, is that darkness actually can't comprehend light. And so light has to enter into darkness in order for it to flee. But the thing that we know about light and darkness is that they always, always exist in contrast. They always exist in contrast of one another. There's always a a dividing between light and dark. And we've got to be okay and comfortable with the fact that the light divides darkness. And when that makes us uncomfortable, that's the moment that we compromise. When we get uncomfortable with the idea that light divides from darkness, that's when we begin to, to, to heed to our fears we begin to soften the truth that we know and we ought not do that what we have in the gospel is is without a shadow of a doubt an inconvenient truth and it will absolutely divide and because of that in this way paul was was a disruption a threat and a dissenter but the the truth of paul's life is what other option did he have In his mind, there was no other alternative. There was no compromise. There was no pandering. There was no respecter of persons. And that leads us to our first key point for the day. And that's this. That we ought to prize nothing in life more than we prize biblical truth. Prize nothing in life more than we prize biblical truth. We live in a world that's at war with truth. It refuses to acknowledge universal truth in favor of personal truth. What this means is that individuals determine what is true for themselves, even if that means refusing scientific, sociological, and especially biblical truth. Everyone's looking for my truth, and that changes from day to day. Doesn't it? What my truth is today is different than my truth tomorrow. I change my mind, I'm fickle, I'm a human, and I do whatever's convenient. I do whatever feels good. That's what I do. And that's the way our world functions today, is that truth is flexible. And I don't need a universal truth as long as I have my own truths. And this is never more true than over the issue of sex and gender. It's the most obvious version of this that we could possibly come up with. Is that we live in a world today that I, I get to be whatever gender that I feel like psychologically. And so the, 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 the crazy thing about this, the the irony of the whole thing, is that what the world is saying is that Christians refuse science. That Christians are somehow backwards and that they... That they're some, somehow unscientific in the way that they think. And yet this is the exact same audience that looks at biology and says, no. They look biology straight in his face and says, no, actually the greater truth is the truth of feeling. And feeling is how I feel psychologically. And so now even worldly forms of truths are out the window. That's the world we live in. It's a world that's at war with truth. The Bible, and listen, the Bible itself is the greatest enemy of the 21st century. It's the greatest enemy. And as soon as as the truths of Scripture can be pushed out into the periphery, the sooner the world thinks they're going to get everything that they want. They'll get their tolerant world, right? The world that they think will be Better. Somehow more profound. Some, somehow more kind. And I don't see the world getting kinder. The further the truth does get pushed out, I don't see it getting any kinder. I, get, I see it getting more divisive. As long as the authority is however I feel... Then I have absolute uh, sexual liberty. I I I can create a feel-good culture. I can create an ideology that suits me. And the sad thing about it is that that Christians all over are buying into this. Because the truth, the truth has has left the pulpit. It has left their Bible studies. It has left their churches. The people aren't studying to show themselves approved. They don't desire to be approved in the eyes of God. They see them, they see their lives as being devoted to being approved in the eyes of man. And so this becomes optional. And the more this becomes optional, the more compromised we are as a people. We as Christians have to determine every single day not to bend our knee. We have to choose to go against the crowd. Time and time again, we find that Paul valued truth even more than his own life, which meant he was willing to sacrifice his life if it meant that truth might be proclaimed. And if we're honest, many of us don't have that kind of passion for truth. Our passions in life are a good career, good education, good, good job beautiful family, a financially safe future, friends that accept us. But no passion in our lives should be greater than our passion for truth. There should be nothing in our lives that takes precedence over truth because we can't forget that truth came to us The truth set us free. It's truth that quickened us. It's truth that loved us before we could love truth in return. And yet as it concerns the day-to-day of our lives, in the right instance, in the right moment, many of us would be willing to trade truth for convenience sake. And it's absolutely wicked. So let me warn you that your love for truth, it may feel like it runs deep. It may feel like you believe. It may feel like you love Jesus and you'd never betray him. But I want to I warn you that, that for some of us, in the right moment, we'd be willing to sell out Jesus himself. See, as we see in our story, Paul's words result, resulted in a chaotic response from the people. So he says this thing, and listen to how it goes for him. And they gave him audience unto his word, and they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust in the air. So what's happening here? The instant they hear about a Jesus they don't like, they lose their stuff. They're they're tearing their garments. They're taking the dust. They're throwing it in the air. That's That's a Jewish act of mourning is to pour dust on your head. They're so disturbed by Paul's words, they want to kill him. And they're throwing themselves upon the ground and they're throwing dust in the air in mourning. They despise the very words that he says. And I want to point something out that I think is also very important, and it's this that when we speak truth, it's inevitable that we'll get rejected. It's inevitable. We're going to get rejected. If there's anything that we've learned from Acts, is that when we speak truth, we're going to get rejected. Verse 24 says, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So this scourging, this scourging, was a little bit more than anything Paul had probably quite experienced. See, Paul wasn't afraid of getting beaten for truth's sake. Okay? Paul wasn't afraid of losing his life, and Paul wasn't afraid of the scourging. But I want to say that the scourging itself is a little bit different than a, than a standard beatdown, than the standard beatdown that Paul had experienced. I mean, the man's been stoned, right? He'd been beaten before, he'd been whipped, put in prison, put in prison cells. Yeah, he's been through some stuff. But boy, this scourging, this thing is, is, is pretty nasty. Jesus experienced a scourging. A scourging is a Roman whip, it's a short whip. Okay, with, with many different uh, leather extensions coming off the whip. And embedded into the leather would have been sharpened bone and metal fragments. And the idea is that this wasn't like a standard crack of the whip. This was a whip that you would slam against the body with the intent that those metal pieces dig in, and then you rent it off the skin. And so what would often happen is that ribs would be exposed Intestines would be exposed, muscle tissue would be exposed, and a lot of times it would lead to the death of the individual being scourged. And the chief captain says, Look, we're gonna let's scourge this guy and examine him. But what they meant by that was that they were gonna try to beat some truth out of him. So he given him this audience with the Jewish people and he spoke, and nothing was resolved. And the chief captain just couldn't have an uproar in his city. And so he was going to get to the bottom of the situation. And so scourging seemed like the best way, the best torture device to get the real truth out of Paul. What's going on? Who are you? What are you doing here?
1: Now, I want to to say
0: that Paul probably did not fear the scourging. But I bet he wasn't looking forward to it. (laughs) I don't think that he was like anticipating it with joy, not in the fleshly sense. Maybe in a spiritual sense. But I don't think he was stoked about it. And the prospect of death would have been a difficult one, knowing that he had work to do. And I want to come back to this point. I'm going to come back to this point. But before I do, I want to remind you that many of us have never experienced persecution like this. And it's very sobering for us as believers to think that any Christian during any time has gone through things like this. But if you don't know much about Christian history, this is common. What we experience as American Christians in our day and age is actually phenomenal. This is actually the exemption. This is actually just, this is very, very unique. It's a blessed time for believers in that we don't actually suffer persecution the way that Christians did in the first century or the second century or the third or the fourth century, in fact, or actually almost every century in the last 2,000 years. We've been lulled to sleep. We've been lulled to sleep by our culture. And we really enjoy things the way that they are. But Paul, Paul's mindset was different than ours. Paul's mindset was, I'll take a beating if it means, if it means that I get to proclaim truth. If it means that I get to share who my God is, I'll take that beating. In 1948, not so long ago, Romanian evangelical pastor Richard Wormbrandt, having become a Christian just ten years earlier, publicly stated that communism was a threat to Christianity, which it is. That's that's for a different sermon. But but let's be honest, that's an underpinning of this entire sermon. As a result, he was captured, imprisoned, and tortured by the by the then communist regime, regime of Romania for his faith. After serving a total of 14 years, he was eventually ransomed for his freedom. Now, in his book, The Account of His Life, he takes a moment to discuss how much he prized truth and how precious the proclamation of truth was for him. Okay, and I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear it with sober ears. He says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege, to pay the price of the privilege for preaching, so we accepted their communist terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching, and they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. do you think men like this think when they see Christians who have every opportunity to share their faith with the lost? Waste that away on social justice, wokeness, tainted terms, What do you think Paul would think if he went into American Bible studies today to find out that no one was studying the Bible? Key point proclaiming truth will always have consequences. And for us, we might be so privileged in our world that when we preach the gospel, the worst consequences that we might face is, is the reject social rejection by other people. Maybe we we're pushed out of a, a sphere of influence or a group of friends, or we might be castigated by those that we love. So be it. That's light. That's light. That burden is so light. But I want to say to you that in our lifetime, look, this was 1948 that Richard Wurmbrand experienced this. In our lifetime, we can experience very similar things. God has never promised us that we won't receive beatings. He told us to anticipate them. And I'm not here to speculate how America could ever go that direction. I'm not here to do that. My point is, is that we need to be ready. And that we need to be willing to proclaim truth regardless of the consequences that come with it. For those of us who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, have we resolved in our heart this very truth? It's important that we work over it in our mind over and over again. Because let's let's be really honest, the disciples themselves told Jesus, hey, no matter what, man, we're in your corner. We got your back. No matter what goes down. Okay, but then the moment Jesus gets arrested, they're gone. They're, they're nowhere to be seen. And we're not any different than that. We sit around in our comfortable pews. I mean, in here, maybe not so comfortable, but I mean, compared to other places I've been. I mean, Listen. Uh, To to that point, in India, I saw saw eight-year-old boys sitting on concrete floors for eight hours taking notes, LFBI-level content that were teaching to pastors and training pastors. And these little boys had the privilege of sitting in. And I'm talking about eight, nine, 12, 13-year-old boys taking notes from a translator for eight hours at a time in scorching heat. Like I could hardly handle it. And I'm like, I'm standing up. I get to move around. See, they value truth so much. It was like water in a dry and thirsty land. It was like honey on their tongues. They loved it. And we're so funny. For us, Bible study attendance is optional. Going to church is optional. We can call ourselves Christians. We can walk around and proclaiming the gospel is optional to us. Telling the lost world, it's like no big deal. Like we, we get in our cars and we go places and we don't, we're not thinking to ourselves, I wonder if I have an opportunity. We think to ourselves, how busy am I today? such a busy day. i got so much to do. So many errands to run. We're not thinking, man, there's so, many, there's so many lost people. There's so many people I've got to tell the truth to today. There's something broken in the way that we think, y'all. It ain't right. But Paul, he was resolved. And the chief, <clears throat> the chief was now ready to interrogate Paul through the means of torture. And so they prepare to scourge him. And in their mind, Paul was, you know, he was an instigator and, and they had to deal with it. You know, Paul had been beaten many times at this point in his life. But, uh, but he knew that the scourging might be the end of his life. This might be the way that he goes out. He recognized that this, this could actually be the end. And so... He's got a card that he can play. And, and so even though, here's, here's the point I want to make, is that even though we ought to be prepared for any consequence that comes to, in, into our Christian life, we also need to be prudent. And we need to be wise. And Paul was wise in this moment. And Paul played a card. It was his last card that he could play. He had one option to get out of this situation Now if he had to die, he'd die, it's cool, but he had a card to play and so he played it. In verse 25, it says, and they bound him with thongs. Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain saying, take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. So what happens here, uh, you gotta understand culturally, is it's a big deal to be a Roman citizen. Okay, it gave you some extra benefits. The standard, you know, occupied Jew in Jerusalem did not have privileges that those that were Roman citizens had. And so at the time, these men didn't know who Paul was. They didn't know that he was born a Roman. Paul's dad was Roman, and so he actually had the benefit of also having a Roman citizenship. He was born into his citizenship. And that was a really big deal And he knew that it would exempt him from these beatings. He knew that being a Roman actually allowed him to avoid these types of situations because it was unlawful for him to be beaten before he'd been prosecuted. And so he plays that card. He plays his best hand. And I want to point out Paul's prudency in his decision-making. So even though Paul wasn't afraid of death, In fact, he seemed to accept it. You know, in in, in Acts chapter 20, he he says that that none of of these things move me. Remember when he says that? None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. In other words, long ago, he accepted, eh, it's just my life. They could take my life, right? He would accepted that, but he knew in this moment that if his body was to be, be beaten, and that his mind was stolen from him, and that his feet no longer worked, that he would be, he would be, the opportunity to steward and preach the gospel would be taken from him. And so even though he was okay with the idea of dying, it was preferable for him to continue in his stewardship and be used. And so he says, Hey look, guys, I'm a Roman, so if you want to beat me, that's cool. But you got to know that you're going to be going against your own law, and so it caused them to pause. In this case, he takes advantage of what he had at his disposal, and this reminds us of an important principle for the Christian who values and uh, the protection of truth and the, values their stewardship. See, here's the deal: there's no virtue in walking into traps. There's no value in walking into traps. Now, I don't want this concept to be abstract for you, so I'm going to try to make it as plain as possible, but here's our key point. Prize the truth, proclaim the truth, but be prudent. Prize the truth, proclaim the truth, but be prudent. Proverbs 8.12 says, I, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. The Bible says that, that wisdom itself dwells with prudence. I dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. In other words, wisdom and prudence together can see all of the vanity all around them. The traps that are set before them. The witty inventions of the enemy. Right? They, they, they see the wiles of the devil. And they have the ability to simply, you know, I think of like the Roadrunner, right? You guys know the Roadrunner? Yeah. I don't, a, I don't have a SpongeBob illustration Okay, the roadrunner. This is classic stuff here, right? He always seemed to have wisdom and prudence, didn't he? And the traps didn't work. Proverbs fourteen fifteen says, "The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his own going." In other words, in other words, it says that, that those that are wise, those that are prudent, are thoughtful about all of their decision making. And they weigh it in the balance. See, when at all possible, it is good to avoid conflict and traps that will hinder long term ministry opportunities. I, I don't know how many of you have read 1 and 2 Samuel, but 1st and 2 Samuel is like a lesson in how to avoid traps. <laughs> because all it is is a series of stories of men and women who either avoid traps or knowingly step into them. And so, you know, we see this over and over again. And I think of the very first time that I really see this clearly is when Saul's throwing javelins at David. And that dude's like... <laughs> <laughs> he's like, one quick juke, and then he's like, out, <laughs> And the javelin sticks in the wall, and he's, he's like avoiding the trap. And he doesn't even engage in... The the, the warfare that Saul wants to engage with, he's not even willing to meet him there. And he spends 10 years avoiding the trap of conflict. Because he knows that if he engages, if he knows that he stoops that low, that it'll actually prohibit and keep him from doing the ministry that he's supposed to do. He knows he's the anointed one. But we also see tragedy in decision making, poor prudence. In 2 Samuel, such as the, the very beginning of 2 Samuel, we see that young Amalekite who thinks he's going to get favor from David by going and telling him, look, I actually killed Saul. You know, he was like half dead. He was out there, in the, in, you know, on the battlefield. And, you know, he wanted someone to kill him. So I just stepped up to the plate and I made sure that spear went extra deep and killed him. And he fell into a trap. He, that dude thought he was doing the, he he was doing the wise thing. By like going and telling David that, he brings him, like, his crown, I think is how it goes. He's like, look, man, I did it. <laughs> so David's like, kill this dude. <laughs> 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 Get him out of my sight. Kill him. Because he put his hand to God's anointing. Yeah. And then from there, you just see all these things. David starts falling into traps because he takes his eyes off the mission. And then he's, because he's no longer mission focused. Now he's falling into traps. He's, look, I'm telling you, first and second Samuel. These stories show us time and time again that avoiding conflict sometimes protects our greatest passions. Because we have to remember that our greatest passion is the truth. And so even though we're not afraid of persecution, even though we're not afraid of consequences, even though we're not afraid of rejection, sometimes it's uh, it's smart to avoid those conflicts and those trappings and those consequences that we might perpetuate the gospel in the future that we might be able to move forward in faith, that our ministry might have a long-term impact. And so so sometimes we have to choose prudence. These truths are going to be super important to the team that we're praying for in Vietnam. See, this is is how practical this is for us because we're about to send a team of of our best friends to Vietnam which is a, as a communist country that hates what we believe, and they're going to have to be very secret about the way that they occupy that land, the way that they infiltrate the community, the times in which they choose to speak and not choose to speak, when to hold their tongue, when to speak up, when to be bold, when to be quiet. See, these... For us, we think, oh, well, you know. No, they're going to know in an instant what it means to be prudent in the way that they behave. And we ought to pray for them. See, there's something to the famous quote by the philosopher Oliver Goldsmith when he wrote, he who, finds, uh, he, he who fights and runs away may live to fight another day. But he who is battle slain can never rise to fight again. There's something to that. As we carry truth into contentious world into a contentious world, there's a paradox at work. We should be prepared to speak the gospel at any cost, but at the exact same time, we must show restraint. We have to recognize that the decisions that we make might risk future ministry. Okay, so like with your families, you don't have to die on every hill with your lost family members. I mean, some of y'all just want to fight with Uncle So and So about the gospel. Some of y'all just, the way you talk to your moms and dads, you guys are freaking jerks. I'm going to say freaking the way Daniel said it 27 <laughs> times. Some of you guys are just jerks. And you're not, you're not prudent in the way that you behave yourself because you know what? You're not thinking about future ministry. You're not thinking that you've got to preserve this person's heart for the, for, for the sake of the gospel long term. We've got to be careful with the way that we speak. We've got to think through things. Romans 12:18 says... If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So how do we know how do we know when to speak? How do we know when it's wise to engage in conflict? How do we know when the moment is right for suffering? Because sometimes the moment's right. We've got to ask ourselves the following question: what is best for the gospel? And then after we've asked that question, we need to let the Holy Spirit give us the answer. That's how it works. What's the best thing for the gospel? To be silent? To speak up? To sit and wait? Or to march? What's the best for the gospel? And then let the Holy Spirit reveal it. Acts 22:27. 27. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yeah. <laughs> I always like to say yeah. Just seems... <laughs> Yay. <laughs> he said, yay. <laughs> and the chief captain answered, with a great sum, obtained I this freedom. In other words, the chief captain has said, said basically that he bribed somebody in order to get citizenship. That that's how it went down at that time. In order to get citizenship, you would have probably had to pay someone or bribe someone that was higher up. And that's how he got his citizenship. And Paul said, but I was preborn. Then straightway they departed from, because that means it's better. Like guys, like him saying, "Well, yeah, well, I was free him. <laughs> and so they, they, in that moment, that's that's a big deal. And so this is what he says. So they straightway departed from which uh, which should have examined him, and the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he was uh, he had bound him. And then he goes ahead, and he loosens his his bonds, right? So God protected Paul because Paul was smart. Now here's the deal. If Paul would have been examined that afternoon and would have died, if he would have refused prudency, if he would have just taken it the way he had in times past, we wouldn't have the book Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, or Philippians. If he would have died at the hand of the examiners that day, there's four books in our New Testament that we wouldn't have had I'm, I'm fairly thankful of the decision that Paul made that day. Yeah. <laughs> because, because the decision he, he made to be prudent gave us 2,000 years of believers, for, do you know how important Ephesians is to the way that Christians think? Mm-hmm. And we've, we've got to recognize that sometimes some it's good to hold our tongue so that we can fight another day. And I'm so thankful that Paul thought that way. So what we discover is that Paul put his greater passion first in every situation, whether that meant life or death. His greater passion came first. And this brings us back to the introduction. That if our mind is staying on truth, and the prosperity and the protection and the proclamation of truth at any cost, then we will always make the decision, whether it costs us our life or it protects us, we will always make the best decision. this is what we have to learn. Truth is that important. Where do your passions lie? Is the gospel, is the truth our greater passion? Does it dictate the way that we function in our reality? Or do we live, do we live by passions of other souls? If you know that your passions have been wrong, then today is the day of Repentance. And as we sing and worship, come forward and meet with someone and talk through the things that you've allowed to put, that you've allowed in your life that you've put over truth. And that can be as simple as, like, I'm not in God's word every day. You know, to me, I think of it as a spit in the face of Paul, that, that I don't read those letters every day. For those who bled and died that I have a Bible, it's such a slight to them. And what they endured for our sake to not take that truth seriously. This is the mind of Christ. He bled and died that we might have it. And we've got to honor that by letting it, by letting it show us the way. Worship team, please come up. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. And Lord, despite all of the... the Sound issues and things that we've had, Lord, I just am grateful for your word. And I know that, that I don't even have the ability, I don't have the capacity to speak your truth rightly. I, I, I know that that in my flesh I get in the way. But God, I'm, I'm trusting that your word would, sp- would have just spoken or, or will be speaking exactly what it needs to speak into the hearts of the lives of the people in this room. And if there's things in our lives that need to change, that we would be faithful enough and honest enough and genuine enough and desire truth enough to say, God, I'm wrong and you're right. I'm, I'm the liar. I'm the weak one. I'm, I'm the one that's, that's fallacious in my behavior. I'm the inconsistent one. You're the true one. And you've always been true. You've been true to me, and you've been true to truth. And you deserve my attention, and you deserve, you deserve me to speak your truth without robbing you of any of your character. So, Lord, teach me. Teach me what it means to be a proclaimer of your truth, to prize it above everything else, and, Lord, to be a good decision maker, prudent in my behaviors, and how I do ministry. Lord, teach me. In your son Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times, and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.liv.com.